Yeah, I was really happy when they showed up because I knew that the novel was going to take a, on a whole new dimension. And I think we always want that. We always, uh, or at least I am always looking for that element that's going to appear that is going to change the dynamic and the trajectory and raise the stakes and make everything much more complex. And I also think for the reader, reader too, like when I feel that shift, when the Temple of Pain and Glory walks in and I felt that shift, I know the reader's going to feel it too. And I think those are the things we're always looking for, the shifts in the story that make the reader go, oh, oh, okay, now, now this just, the plot thickens as they now say. Now we're rolling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now we're yeah. rolling. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the newest episode of the Friends and Fiction Writers Block podcast. On this podcast, we focus on storytelling in all its many creative formats. Today, we'll be talking to the prolific Oxford, Mississippi author about his newest novel, Salvage This World, his writing process, and so much more. His books are already modern classics and widely hailed. In fact, I just saw the newest book on Sean S.A. Cosby's best of the year list, so congrats on that. But to go a step further, he's adapted his own work for the big screen, and very successfully, I might add. There's a lot of questions that we have for Michael Ferris Smith. I am Ron Block. And I am Patty Callahan Henry. Michael Ferris Smith is an award-winning writer whose novels have appeared on best of the year lists with so many places, including Esquire, NPR, Southern Living, Garden and Gun, Oprah Magazine, Book Riot, and so many more. He has also been named an Indie Next, a Barnes and Noble Discover, and Amazon Best of the Month. He has written the feature film adaptations for his novels, Desperation Road and The Fighter, titled for the screen as Rumble Through the Dark, because there might have been a movie called The Fighter. I do believe. Might have been, yeah. Might have been. (laughs) He lives in Oxford, Mississippi with his wife and daughters, and that just scratches the surface of the many accomplishments from this celebrated and acclaimed creator. I am proud to call in my friend, and we can't wait to dive in and learn more about his newest novel. Thank you, guys. That's very kind. Yeah, welcome. We're honored. So thank you for joining us. And as we said, we've got a lot to talk about, but let's start with the newest book, Salvage This World. In the book, a young mother and her son find themselves threatened by nonstop hurricanes while being chased by a religious zealot and con woman who's after the father. That might be what it's about on the surface, but in true friends and fiction fashion, what is the book really about? Are you asking me or Patty? We're asking, <laughs> asking you. you. <laughs> I could tell you, I think, but then I'd be telling you what it's really about for me. Yeah. I want to hear what it's really about That's for right. you. Well, I think the thing that horrified me about writing that novel was about page 15. I realized it was going to be about a father and a daughter. I have two daughters, 
and I had never written about the father-daughter relationship before, and it really did sit me back. I remember the moment, and the moment that I realized it was going to be about a father and a daughter is when Jesse is running with the baby, and she stops at the payphone, and she's standing there pacing, trying to think of who to call because she really has nothing and no one. And her pacing around trying to figure out who to call was me pacing around sitting here at the laptop trying to figure out who she was going to call. And I think even as she walked over and started dialing, I wasn't exactly sure. And then when there's a click and an answer and the word came out of her mouth, Daddy, that was one of my... I've had like four or five get up and walk away from from the laptop moments in my career, and that was one of them. Because when she when it came out, Daddy, I knew that this was going there, and I also knew that she didn't say she didn't say Wade, she didn't say Dad, she didn't say Hey, she said Daddy, and we all know that that word carries a very different connotation from any of the other ways you can address your father. And uh, that was I did. I, I stood up, walked outside, walked around, tried to figure out if I really wanted to do this, and the answer was yes. <laughs> and so I came back in and kept going. Thank God you did. Yeah. Because that's the most powerful relationship in the novel, but also it's such an archetypal and primal relationship in the world, even a son and father. And the word daddy. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's pretty powerful. It is pretty powerful. Yes. And the, the flip side of that was then I had to turn around and write Wade answering the phone. And I realized then, you know, you know Clearly, they have been estranged for a while. I didn't know why yet. But him answering the phone when he picks it up and he hears that word, even though he hasn't spoken to her in several years, he how it hits him, too. And he realizes when he hears her say, Daddy, and not, Hey, Wade, like he knows she's in trouble, even though they haven't spoken in, in years. And so his reaction to it was very compromised, too, right out of the gate. He had to deal with things he wasn't expecting, just that one word, I think, really changed the dynamic of that entire story and that entire relationship. Just, it's what, uh, D-A-D-D-Y, five letters, you know, is all it took. Yeah, I had to count on my yeah, fingers. Yeah, <laughs> So, <laughs> Michael, I know we talk about this, but I'm fascinated by origin stories, both of this book and you as a writer. But first, I want to talk about, in the book, its origin story. We are both preacher's kids, and although our experiences are a bit different, there are some things that stay the same, including the fascination with storytelling and also how religion can go, let's say, awry. Mm -hmm. So where did the original idea for Salvage This World first emerge? What is the first seed you had for this, and how, how did you take it to the next, onto the page? Right. Every novel has started with me with just an image I cannot get out of my head. And I walk around with it for, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight weeks. And when I can't shake it, I've realized that's probably the what I need to sit down and see what it's about. For me, I had the very first sentence of Salvage This World written for about two months, and it just sat there. I had actually written it on my notes on my phone. I don't know. I can't remember where I was or what I was doing, but that sentence, this image of this young girl standing with a kid propped on her hip, staring at an approaching storm with kind of the wind and uh, whipping around, the dust flying and everything. I wish I had the book. I would read it, but I don't have the book. But I almost have it memorized. It's uh, She stood with 
She stood bathed in twilight. That's what it is. She stood bathed in twilight, a kid on her hip, dust in her hair, and she stared at the approaching storm as if she could wrangle the thunderheads and deliver them to a parched land where they would pay whatever ransom she demanded. That was the sentence I had written for a long time, and it just sat there. And then I finally sat down and uh, realized that's what I want to go after, and I wrote the next sentence and kept going from there. So that, that was the seed of it. And it started for me. I mean, that sentence was loaded for me because I knew there was a lot at stake immediately. And I don't think you can ask for more than that from a first sentence. No. I felt the desperation. I felt no. the isolation. I felt the landscape. And those are three things I typically dive into. And uh, that sentence had had all of it. And uh, so that that was the germ that led to this novel being written. Did you know when you first had that seed of her standing there, which is a powerful scene, by the way, you immediately, when we talk about grounding in the first sentence, we have a sense of place, we have a sense of desperation, we have a sense of who she is, because she has a baby, and we know that she's desperate. She's got to get out, she's got to, she's maybe looking for something, but did you know at that point that it would involve a crazy religious zealot, tent revivals, a con woman. Did you know any of that yet when that first started? No, I, d- I didn't know any of that. Wow. I mean, Patty, you and I have talked over the years. I work without a net pretty much, and it's yep. just moment to moment. And But I tell you, when it occurred to me that maybe that's who's out here behind all of this, when the when the words the temple of pain and glory came out of my head and onto the page, I was like, "Yeah, this is going to be fun. <laughs> this bumps. is going to be fun." Yeah. <laughs> just, the minute I saw that name, I was like, yeah. Ooh. And that was the first right. like, I really I kept thinking like, "All right, I, I got to name this this traveling revival." And that was the very first name that popped out of my head. There was no like drafts of it or talking to anybody. Like, what's a good name? Like, it just popped right out of my head. Temple of pain and glory. I'm like, of course. And this is going to be fun, 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 fun. I have a feeling. Well, that's the, the the thing about story where we talk about it's more like uncovering a fossil than it is making it up. Like you just keep going, the next sentence, the next sentence, the next sentence, yeah. and there's the temple of pain and glory. Yeah. It was waiting. Yeah, I was really yeah. happy when they showed up because I knew that the novel was going to take a, on a whole new dimension. And I think we always want that. We always uh, or at least I am always looking for that element that's going to appear that is going to change the dynamic and the trajectory and raise the stakes and make everything much more complex. And I also think for the reader, reader too, like when I feel that shift, when the Temple of Pain and Glory walks in and I felt that shift, I know the reader's going to feel it too. And I think those are the things we're always looking for, those shifts in the story that make the reader go, oh, oh, okay, now, now this just... The plot thickens as they now say. We're yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now we're rolling. Now we're rolling. Okay, I want to talk a couple minutes about your origin story. I always say we only have our own compost pile to work from. <laughs> and, you know, I, and I both have quite the compost pile. But I want to know what and who influenced you as a writer. In other words, you've lived in Europe and you've lived in the South. You've read so widely and you didn't even start your first novel until you were 30, right? I didn't start my first novel until I was about 36. Oh, wow. wow. Okay, so what do you think, if you look back at all of that, because it feels like you were always meant to be this novelist, mm-hmm. Michael Ferris Smith, what do you think were the most significant things that led you to becoming a writer on that path? 
Well, I did start writing at 30, but I didn't try to tackle a novel till down the road. Okay. So living in Europe was a big deal because it got me away from old habits and it got me out of the things I'd heard my whole life and been told my whole life. And I realized there's a whole lot more going on in this world than what I've heard growing up in South Mississippi. And that was a big deal for me. And I'm very grateful for that. I also started reading when I was living abroad for entertainment for really the first time in my life because I saw people in the cafes and on the trains and in the parks reading. And I had time to kill, so I would find little English-language bookstores and I would go in and buy the names that I'd heard of, which was all the big names of literature that anybody who went to high school would know, like you know Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Charles Dickens and Flannery O'Connor and 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 Faulkner and some of those writers. And so that's who I start, cut my teeth on as a reader. It turns out those are pretty good, pretty good writers to, <laughs> to be reading. And so my influence right out of the gate was were the were the heavyweights, you know. But in the course of that, this is probably the moment where that truly has led me to sitting here talking to you right now. Is I came home for a few weeks one holiday season when I was still living abroad and I came I came to Oxford I had friends here just to sp- spend a few days hanging out and I walked into Square Books late one night and uh, there was a Mississippi writers table in the front of the store and I just looked down at it and I didn't know who who any of them were you know it was contemporary Mississippi writers and there was a, a book by a guy named Larry Brown called Big Bad Love, a collection of short stories, and there was a novella titled Ray by Barry Hanna. And I picked up both those books and saw they were both Oxford writers, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to take these. And I went back. uh, My friend lived right off the square. I went back and sat down on their porch and read both of those books front to back that night before I went to bed. And it just really hit me. Like, you know, I'd been reading a lot of the traditional greats but it hit me this is what a mississippi writer living breathing walk around today is doing and writing about and larry's stories in particular really just hit me right between the eyes because i knew those back roads i knew the people in his stories i heard the cadence in the voice i smelled the cigarettes i tasted the beer like i just i felt the loneliness that are in those stories i uh the you know the violence that is in those stories the the darkness that is in those stories something just really hit me about that. And I started looking up who Larry was. And, you know, a couple of years later when I decided to write this, I was 29 coming back home. And what I'd found out about Larry was he was 29 when he started writing. He started writing just because he loved reading. He was a blue collar guy who'd worked a hundred different jobs and was sick of it. And he just wanted to try to do this because he thought maybe I can. And that was my entire mindset. And when I read his interviews, that normalized it for me. Like it it said to me, what you're thinking is not strange, even though nobody, you know, me coming back to Mississippi from Paris and trying to tell people, yeah, I think I'm going to write. was like being a, you know, as if I'd grown another head on my shoulder while I was gone. I felt like it was saying... I want to be an astronaut. Yeah, I might as well have been saying that because nobody got it. And I had nowhere to turn. So, like, I found a a great deal of um, uh, to relate to in Larry's interviews. And then through Larry, I started, you know, diving into interviews of writers who had influenced him. And I saw that the trajectory was real, like, and possible. Like, William Gay, too, was someone I found at that time. And he didn't publish his first novel until he was in his 50s, you know. So, all of a sudden, just 
getting to know Larry and his work and finding that book that night in that bookstore told me it was possible and it made me feel not so weird or strange about wanting to try it, you know. I think those are the big points of the origin story that have have landed us where we've landed. I think it's fun to look back and see the stepping stones and acknowledge them as this like greater story and say that moment when I walked into there and then it's an honoring yeah. of it in many ways. Yeah. So. The other great moment that I always kind of laugh at was I had no idea. I mean, I hadn't even written anything, so I had no idea of what I was even doing or how to do it. So I thought, well, I need to, I need to, maybe I should go to a writing program. Um, and I looked around at Southern Miss, which was an hour and a half from where my parents lived, uh, had a graduate writing program, the Center for Writers, which I didn't even know at the time. It was like one of the top 10 programs in the, in the country at the time. I had no clue. And I start looking at my application the day I'm getting it ready, and I have no writing samples. I'm applying to the Center for Writers graduate program. I have no writing samples. <laughs> I had a 2.4 GPA from my undergrad with a degree in communication. The, the morning, Saturday morning, I took the GRE. I stayed out all night long with the woman I eventually married, and so I completely bombed it. I remember thinking, if I mail this in, they're going to throw it in the garbage before they can get to the second page. And they and they would have. So I borrowed my dad's truck. I took my application in my hand. I drove down to Southern Miss. I walked into the English department. I walked up into the Center for Writers' office where Ree Fortenberry, the administrative assistant, was sitting there. And I knocked, didn't know her, just knocked on the door. I saw the Center for Writers sign on the on the wall, I knocked on the door and I went in and sat down and I gave handed it to her and I just started talking about to her about who I was and where I'd been and what was making me want to do this. And by some miracle, she let me in the program. Oh, I love my story. God, I can't <laughs> believe I've never heard that story from you. Yeah, yeah. She let me in the program and that also like really expedited my process. Oh, God, we got to go for it, man. Right. Like, we can't sit back and let life just happen. We have to go for it, Michael. That's amazing. That's Desperation amazing. is a powerful motivator. Yes, it is. <laughs> it comes through in your work, too, in your books. So, okay, so now you've gone through the program, and now that you've started writing, you've written seven books in 10 years, plus two movies that dropped this year alone. It's just amazing. And obviously, you're a slacker, so... <laughs> <laughs> no, but this has to be this has to be one of your best years yet. So much has happened in in the, all of these years. Share the journey from when you first started publishing to now. How did you get to where you are, and what's it feel like to be in this moment in your career? Uh, it's very. It has been a huge year. I mean, I don't even know any other way to put it, and I'm yeah. not even going to try to say it's not because to have Salvage come out in April and be very proud of the book and its reception, and then um. And I also think I see a what I've. This is off track a little bit, but I see a growth. Okay. In, I That's see, our favorite. I've seen in each of my novels. I think like an evolution of me as a writer, and I'm mm. proud of that. Like I, I know Salvage is another step, and what direction I don't know exactly, but it is. I do believe the sentences and the scenes and the the riffs that I took with it was another another step, and I'm very proud of the way that turned out. And then to have Two movies, adaptations, and that I was in, in, involved in both both processes, wrote both the scripts, was on the sets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
Yeah, it's been pretty huge. I, I've smoked a lot of cigars this year. <laughs> I've smoked way too I was many. Say, I've seen you cigars this year. That's I've a great seen way you to put on it. Instagram with a few cigars. I'm like, yeah. what a year! Yeah. What a year! What a but year! You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, goddamn! I want to tell this story again. I even forgot about this. You talk about how it all started with the hands of strangers. So. I published some short stories from the time I started, but I always wanted to be a novelist. That's why I got into this. And when I was about 36 or 37, I started trying. And I wrote, you know, a couple that, you know, everybody has one or two in the drawer. And things I just wasn't happy with and knew they weren't right. Well, I finally ended up writing this novella called The Hands of Strangers. And I had started submitting it to agents and editors again. And now the rejection that I was getting was not, you know, thank you, but this is not quite right for us. The rejection was, you know what? I really love this, but I cannot sell a novella from a debut author. So now the rejection became about something else. It became about marketing. It became about promotion. It became about all these other things that are, and that was frustrating in a way that was much more irritating than the frustration of just getting a rejection letter or a rejection email mm-hmm. it's like you can take it if you think they don't like the work but when somebody says you know what this is great but it can't be published not from you not yet so uh you know i spun that thing around for a couple of years and in the meantime i started writing rivers and then i got really depressed and i got really sick of it all and uh because i had promised myself i was going to publish a novel by the time i was 40 and then I turned 39, and guess what? I didn't, I didn't have anything, any prayer, any chance. And I got really, really depressed, um, knowing that that was not going to happen. August of the year that I was 40, I had one little girl. Uh, Sabria was pregnant. Again, she was, com- was going to be there in December. We sat on the back porch of my house, and I said to her, I'm going to give this until I was teaching full-time at the time. I'm going to give this until the end of the school year, until next May. And I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep submitting. But if nothing's happened by then, then I'm done. I just, I can't do this anymore. I'm exhausted by it. It's making me miserable. Like, I, I, I know I'm good enough. Why I can't break through, I don't know. I said, but truly, I'm not, I can't do it anymore. And, you know, she's picked me up a thousand times, but she could tell there was something different in this. And she just kind of nodded and said, if that's what you want to do, then that's fine. And so that I had put the date on my calendar that I was going to quit. It was going to be May of nine months down the road. And um, I was sitting up one night because I couldn't sleep um, just maybe a week or two later. And I just pulled up the hands of strangers and just did a Google search for anybody looking for a novella, manuscripts. And I uh, sent it off to this little uh, indie press in uh, North Carolina. Really forgot about it. And then about a month later, I got an email. They said, we'd love to publish this if it's still available. And I was like, and I said, uh, my favorite part of that was if it's still available. I was like, I don't know. Let me check. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's, it's still available. (laughs) And they said, you know, there's no money in it, but we're going to print this amount of copies and we'll get it reviewed. And I said, I don't give a shit, man. I don't care, man. Just publish it. And um and they did, and that changed everything. And, and they're right. There was no money in it, and that was fine, but it's a beautiful little book. And what they did was they sent it out for review, and the editor called me one day, and he goes, um, have you seen Publishers Weekly? And I was like, why would I, why would I see Publishers Weekly? He said, uh, I've been sending books to them for 15 years. He goes, 
Hands of Strangers just got a starred review from Publishers Weekly. That's the first starred review I've ever gotten from anything I've sent them. And I didn't truly even know what that meant because I was, I remember he sounded really happy. And I was thinking, well, <laughs> one star is one star good? Is one out of like, one out of how many? Like out of five? Like that's not very good. Why is he <laughs> oh, so excited? Hilarious. And like I again Googled uh, what that meant. I was like, oh shit, that's a. Uh, that's pretty good. That's no wonder good. he was so excited. <laughs> it's a good star. <laughs> what that meant was I was had I, I kept writing rivers when the when they said they wanted to publish that, I got reinvigorated and I sat down and kept writing rivers. And now about the time that about the time that, that starred review came out, which the universe is funny, you know when it came out in May when I was when I was gonna quit. That's Whoa. when it came out. And I had a finished draft of Rivers, and now when I email agents, I was like, oh, by the way, I just published a novella and got a star review and with help from nobody, so y'all can kiss my ass. But if you'd like to, <laughs> if you'd like to see this novel I've got now, I'd love to show it to you. And all of a sudden, everybody wanted to see it. Everybody that I reached out wanted to see it. And um, the agent who took it on submitted it on a Tuesday, and there was a, a deal for it the next Monday. Eating better is something we want to be convenient and easy. With Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals, every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. I'm looking forward to over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. What are you waiting for? Let's get started today and get after our goals. Fuel up fast with Factors' restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prep, no mess. With Factor, there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Sign up and save. They've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout. Join us and head to factormeals.com fiction50 and use code fiction50 to get 50% off. That's code fiction50 at factormeals.com slash fiction50 to get 50% off. Ready to age awesome? Pop in your AirPods and join me, Katie Fogarty, over on A Certain Age Podcast, an age-positive podcast that helps you live your best evolving midlife loud and proud. We know the only constant is change. Kids grow, jobs come and go. What it takes to be fit, healthy, happy, fulfilled in midlife looks way different than it did in our 20s and 30s. A Certain Age features expert voices in real women, 40, 50, 60, and beyond, with tips, tools, and resources to help with the hard stuff, menopause, aging parents, career change, and light you up about what's next. Each week, we talk wellness, beauty, family, money, purpose, fashion, and fun in frank, funny interviews that go straight to the heart of issues facing women. One Apple podcast review says each episode is a gold mine of ideas, emotional support, and self-discovery. I feel like I'm part of the conversation at the best dinner party imaginable. A Certain Age podcast. Live midlife out loud. Man. And that was all within the time frame of me saying that there, that's my quit date. The universe was not going to let you quit. And I bet no if that way. date had come, you still wouldn't have I quit. I don't know, man. But thank God I, I was, you I was did pretty it. serious. Uh, I'm <laughs> determined. Uh, I always tell people when, they, when they're frustrated, I think the number one thing of writers who eventually get published is nothing – Literally, I mean, the work, the submission, perseverance. Absolutely. Like, 
Like you just, you just don't say, oh, forget it in the first go round. Like I, that one person got me off track. Absolutely. You know, like I was, I remember standing outside on a cigarette break at the Center for Writers one night in the middle of workshop. And I didn't smoke, but I like going out and hanging out with smokers. And um, there was this really talented woman there in the program. And she was a few years older than I was. So I kind of liked, you know, we were like the only adults there. But we were standing out there, and her and a couple of other students started talking about people who had graduated, uh, like before them, and people they knew, and like kind of what are they doing? Well, they're teaching here, this and that and the other. And she, she started talking in particular about one person who was, she thought was like really crazy talented. And the guy out there said, yeah, he's not really writing anymore. And I remember she took a long drag on her cigarette and blew it out. And she said, the world is full of talented people who quit. Oh, and that st- hit me right in the heart. And I thought to myself in wow. that moment, like, that won't be, that will not be me. And, um, I mean, I'm talking about it however many years later, two decades later. It, that sticks in my head. And it was just another one of those serendipitous moments of where I heard what I needed to hear. Oh, they're not serendipitous. Like, they are, they are like breadcrumbs we follow, right? You have to. And here's the thing. It's, they happen, but only if you're paying attention. That's right. Right? Like all of that, the Mississippi table, the comment, the you sending that off in the middle of the night. There's this idea of us as artists with our head in the clouds and making stuff up, which we do. <laughs> but if you have to be paying attention to the world and everything in it. And one comment or one table or... Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love these stories. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's almost a book itself. This whole story is just like a book I want to read. <laughs> Most of it sounds made up. Like when I tell these stories now, I'm like, God, that sounds like bullshit. But it's all true. Like that's how it happened. You know. Yeah. I wish wow. it would have been. No, I don't. I think it's fine. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. No, you, no, you don't. don't. No, that's no, it's the journey that's supposed to be. I wouldn't have anything to talk it's, about then. Oh, yes, you <laughs> would. oh, I think you would. I think you would. <laughs> okay, so we know that writers are not content to stay where they are. What's what's coming for you? The directors of Rumble Through the Dark have a really good relationship with them, and we have adapted Blackwood, and it's uh, in the process of trying to get rolling to film next year. Yeah. Also have written another original idea script that trying to get going, too. And then I have I wrote the first 20 or so pages of a new novel, like kind of back during the summer, but then with the movies coming and everything that's going on in the fall, I just kind of said, I'm just, I'm not going to try to stab at that. When I write a novel, I really need the, the quiet and the, the habitual nature of it. And I wasn't going to be able to go to it for every day. So I said, I'm going to enjoy it when all this is over. Then I'm going to sit back down and walk into the room and do that again. Enjoy the silence again. And so all that's been over since, uh, you know, Rumble Through the Dark came out November 10th. So the last two weeks have been me settling back in to my little space here and uh, working on a novel again, which feels great because I, you know, haven't written prose in, since the summer. So it feels great to be doing that That's again. That's awesome. Yeah, I hope you've taken some time to sit back and say, what a flipping year. And, yeah. then, and then we have to dive back into work, but it's there for you. You know, I, I was talking about this to somebody the other day because I don't know that I've ever really sat back and en- enjoyed what was happening for whatever there's been a variety of reasons over the years for different things when I, you know, where I haven't enjoyed 
success at whatever level like I probably should have in the moment. And it really hit me like the last couple of months I did. I reasoned with myself like I'm going to – I'm just going to enjoy this, and I'm not going to make any excuses for enjoying it. I'm going to give myself permission to enjoy it, and I'm, and I have done that. And I've been re- reflecting more about uh, the work and kind of how it got here, and kind of how we got to the end of this, and really smoking a lot of cigars and just really kicking back and having some pride in it, where I feel like I've, I've missed yes. those opportunities over the years when I probably should have enjoyed more. And, you know, but I'm also, you're always in that transition mode, too. I think one of my things I've been good with is the ability to switch gears and put something behind me and move on to something new. But I, I have, Patty, yes, sat and enjoyed in a way that I haven't before. Good. Well, it's hard. I mean, even my year has been crazy and wonderful. And I, I it's hard to stop and say, I'm so appreciative. And people say it to me, oh, my gosh, you must be so excited about this, this. And I'm like, Oh gosh, yes I am. <laughs> yeah. But I'm so busy like the next thing, the next thing what right is now. due and I think it's important to stop just like you noticing something. It's important to stop and acknowledge and be proud, Michael, you should be. Okay, back to the book and your writing. You have and we've talked about this such a tremendous sense of place. The weather in this novel is its own character, hurricanes. We're in a South where hurricanes now come at least once a month. People are fleeing. The land is drenched. People are doing anything they can to survive. And you have such a talent for creating setting, whether it's Paris in the 1920s, to war, trench warfare, to hurricane-drenched South. In Salvage This World, I can feel it again from the van in the ditch to the tent revivals. I am totally immersed. You've already said you see the images, but what I want to know is how you get there, especially to the darker places and you stay there. You don't save us quickly. You save us, but you sure don't save us quickly. So talk to me about getting that deep into the setting, bringing us into that darkness and staying there and not chickening out. Hmm. Well, I think the landscape influence goes back to what we were talking about early on the writers I cut my teeth on because, um, yeah, you know, when I was in Paris and I was reading Hemingway and his characters are in Paris, that really like knocked me in the head a little bit. I'm like, okay, this is kind of cool. When I read Faulkner, I didn't really get it, you know, still don't sometimes, but, pl- but places, <laughs> places dripping off of every page. It's just saturated in it. And then through reading Larry, who also makes wonderful use of the Mississippi Hill Country, but through reading Larry, he talked about the influence of Cormac McCarthy on him, and that's how I got got led to Cormac McCarthy and reading his work. And again, it's just the landscape and the imagery and the darkness of all of that uh, was very influential to me and i i do love that and then william gay carson mccullers ballad of the sad cafe that to me i mean that that is such an incredible tale and it's all rooted in place it's it's all rooted in this cafe i like i like being there sometimes i wonder if i'm there too much but i just enjoy writing that that part those parts of it so much and i enjoy making the place whether it be uh you know a motel room a shitty motel room or a sprawling landscape where there's a tornado coming over the horizon or where there's driving on the back roads with the bugs and the headlights. I really love making those places come to life and be a part of 
of what's going on. As far as going into the dark, the dark and staying there, all I can say is uh, this is why I usually go through about a depression toward the end of a novel and after the novel is over. I think that's the most honest yeah. way to put it. Uh, it's hard to get out of sometimes. Blackwood in particular, I had a really, really hard time. Couldn't sleep for weeks. I believe it. Nightmares. Like... It was not it was not good. And then I went from there into the trenches with Nick and into those tunnels. And that was a pretty long stretch. And that was coming off the fighter. We all know how messed up the fighter is. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah, that's a long time in there. Uh I don't know. But I have to say, for those people who are listening who haven't read your work who will now is there is light. There's so much light coming through the cracks and then in the ending and the redemption. And it's just that as writers, we often, especially me, I think I'm talking about myself. I try to pull out too quickly from that darkness because I, it's hard for me to be there when it would serve the story and the character better if I stayed, if that makes sense. And so you don't keep us there too long by any means, but you bring us all the way through. And I feel, I mean, maybe I'm reading into it because we have a similar background, but I feel like Bible stories have shaped some of that too. They certainly have. And you hit the nail on the head. Like the reason I do stay in there so long is because I know I'm trying to figure out how to get them out of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and uh, there is hope and there, uh, there is tiny specks of light in the distance. I'm not sure what they are always, but I kind of work toward them. And I do love that. To me, the to me, the stories that impact me the most is when you truly understand what it whatever it is someone has gone through in its probably worst form to come to salvation. And I think that's <sighs> probably why that, that I stay in there with such depth because it's challenging me emotionally. I'm feeling it. I'm hurting with it. And I want to save them somehow. And how are we going to do that? And I don't always know, but you're always working toward it. Yeah. The Bible stories. Yes. One thing we haven't talked about on this, but you and I have talked about it plenty. Those were the very first stories I knew growing up the son of a Southern Baptist preacher. And those are dark stories, you know? And yes, they are. I mean, even as a kid, the stories are dark and they're short, but they're full of temptation and failure and violence and redemption and courage and hope and revenge and all these things. And while those are the themes, the images are a burning bush, a crown of thorns, a rugged cross, a parting sea. Those are intense images so maybe when i sat down at 29 years old 30 years old to start writing i think those are the things that kind of fed back through me and those are the things thematically those are the first things i knew and experienced and not only did i hear about it in sunday school but then i had sit through a sermon and hear about it (laughs) too you know we got a double double dose every sunday and don't forget (laughs) wednesday night too yeah i try to forget about wednesday night (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know what it's it's interesting that's an interesting question patty because i will tell you that i had to get i'll talk about 
being uh, excited and I think ready to come back into this little room and start going into another novel and going down that road again. Part of me also for the past couple of weeks was, uh, I think, getting myself ready emotionally to do it because I know yes. like it's going into the dark and you're going to be there for a while. And I, I did have the conversation with myself, like, are you ready? Like, are you ready to do it again? And I had to. I had to be sure that I was or else it's not going to be any good. So I think there's that emotional setup for me personally just to go in there and write whatever story's going to come out. And it's not only is it going to be good for the story, but is it going to be good for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that's always on the scale. That's, yeah, it's right? always on the scale. And it's uh, yeah. if I'm not a little terrified by it, if I'm not emotional about it, if I don't don't feel like I'm being challenged in some way. That's not the correct story for me to be writing. I do feel those things now. And I think that's the reason I was a little timid and a little scared of it. But then I'm reminded of myself, well, that's the feeling like that's it. That's what you sit around waiting on. That's how, you know, so here we are. (laughs) Yay. Okay. So I am just fascinated listening to you because I didn't know your background. And now it's actually added another layer of your work for me. And I want to go back to the darkness a little bit and just say that the characters, even though they might not be the most likable or whatever, but there's always something at their core that they're striving for, that they're desperate for, that keeps them going. And you move them through the darkness. And I think that that lends itself a lot of positive in, in the darkness. So I, I think it's great. Thank you. I mean, I think that's very real to life, too. We're all just kind of feeling our way around, right? You know, just sitting here talking about my story, and everybody has their own story that everybody's just feeling their way around in the dark, trying to, you know, go in the right direction. So maybe uh, maybe it's just my way of helping myself get through it, too, by telling the story right. the way I tell it. And the reader too. I think we can relate to some of those things and some of the struggles we've had as readers because it's that's the best kind of book is when we can put ourselves in the story and relate it to our own experience. So it's great. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I've been really happy to hear the response about the father daughter relationship. I've had a lot of fathers say to me, "Man, you nail that," and uh, that that's yeah. felt really nice to know that people can relate to that. Yep. Yeah, and I have to say that the last chapter of this book is brilliant. It is so, I wish we could talk about it. We can't obviously, because it'll be a spoiler, but it's so perfectly constructed. And I, I just, I almost applaud Thank it you. when I read Thank it. You. Feel yeah. free to applaud anytime. Uh, anytime. <laughs> all right. Applause, applause. I just really, I, I was like, I had shivers. I was like, how, how, how did this come to be? But I'll ask you that. All, <laughs> all right. So, You've also been described by Kirkus Reviews as an exceptional storyteller in top form. They said, Smith is building his own Faulkner-esque universe. Your work has also been hailed as intoxicating with masterfully drawn characters in indelible imagery and that you firmly cemented yourself in the Southern literary canon. Talk to us about how this description and all of these descriptions hit you and describe a little bit about your influences, which you've already done, but um, if, if there's any modern influences that you take. Uh, well, that all hits me very nicely. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's very validating. It's very rewarding. I also, I also don't take it too seriously because then you stop trying to be better. But when it, it was funny that that, being called an intoxicating literary stylist was a pub day 
thing that came out in the in the times and so i had the <laughs> i had the launch event that night at square books here in my hometown and uh in the intro the bookstore introduced me they they read that and lisa Howarth, who is richard who owns square books with richard and she's a great friend of mine a great fan a great supporter when i stood up she goes, I have a question before you start like reading and talking. I was like, what the, what's that? She goes, it says intoxicating literary styles, but I think they meant intoxicated. Yes. <laughs> 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 you know, so I think that's how you have to take it, right? You're like very proud. You couldn't be happier to. The building is on Faulkner X Universe, though. I got to say that one hit me a little different. Like that was a very kind of, yes. kind of thing I almost want to put on my wall, but I'm not going to. But I took that as a very... I took that as about as good a compliment as I'll ever, I could ever get, you know. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. It's amazing. And being compared to some of the names I get compared to, I get asked about that. And I just, I I think it's flattering, you know. I think we all have writers who influenced us and you don't want to um, imitate them, but you want to emulate them. And I feel like my voice is this mashup. I mean, everybody's voice, I guess, is a a mashup of everything they've read and kind of how they've created themselves, but I, I do. I, I take them as very wonderful compliments, and uh, but I don't take them much further than that, you know. I'm still sitting here trying to figure it out like everybody else in the morning. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think if, if we take it too far, then we kind of lose ourselves Yeah, if I bit. sit down and I think, okay, let's create this Faulkner universe, this MFS Faulkner yeah, universe, right. or I sit here and think, okay, you got to, you know. If you're going to carry, you know, Cormac McCarthy's suitcase, how do we do that? You know, how's this going to sound? You can't, you can't do that. You just got to sit down and let it rip. That's the best way I can put it. That is perfectly said. Perfectly said. So before we let you go, tell everybody about the movies and where we can find them. Before we came on the air, I told you how much I loved Rumble Through the Dark. Thank you. So one of the best movies of the year. Thank you very much. Desperation Road released October the 6th. And I wrote the script for it. It's a very faithful adaptation. I'm very happy with the way it turned out. The crew, the cast was incredible. I mean, I think it's this with the strength of yes. that movie is just the cast was just incredible. Um, Rumble through the dark, which is based on the fighter. It can't release November the 10th. Also another incredible cast. And I wrote the script for it too. Also a faithful adaptation. I mean, I can't say much more than that other than how grateful I am for that. It turned out that way in both instances. And they're both available to stream on Amazon prime or Apple TV. One easy click for either film. Great. And that's how I got them. And, I, and I'll just say it again here live that Aaron Eckhart is one of the best roles of his career in rumbling through the dark. Thank you. I, I agree. And I tell you, he put, he put everything – it was fascinating to watch him put everything into Jack Boucher the way he did. He had read the novel four yes. or five times. Like he was completely saturated in that role and all the things that were driving that character. Yeah. I, 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 uh, <laughs> now you made me think about it again. Uh, it was funny. I would be uh, like reading through – he would stop by my little apartment and we'd sit outside and uh, read over – do, he wanted to read lines, and I'd read lines with him, and he we get to a certain part, and he'd stop, and he goes, that line's different than it is in the book. And I go, really? You know? awesome. That's amazing. I mean, he knew it that oh, well. Awesome. He knew it that well. I'm like, if you say so, man, I don't know anymore. Like, it's it's all blurry to me, but if you say <laughs> it's different, it's different. But he was that, he was that oh, into it. Oh, my gosh, it. that's awesome. That just, 
it was it was really cool to watch. Well, Michael, we could do this for at least five more days, but <laughs> we're going to have to let you go. Unfortunately, thank you so much for joining us. It's been so enlightening and uh, and just heartwarming, and it's just been great to hear your story. And congratulations on all your success, especially what you've had this year. Unbelievable. Thank you. I really appreciate the invite. Michael, thank you for your openness and your honesty. And I just, what an amazing discussion. Thank you for joining us. Of course. I had a good time. Always nice to talk to you, Patty. You too. And thank you as always, dear listeners. As we near the year's end, we want to remind you that you can purchase a copy of Salvage This World, along with books from all of our past guests at the Friends in Fiction bookshop.org page. Be sure to tune in next Friday for an all new episode. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends in Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here.